Hey guys, how's it going? Today I wanted to talk about this uh, book that I've been reading. It's um, it's called Millionaire Next Door. It's it's a book that was it's been out for quite a while actually, and I've heard a lot about it over the past, God, I don't know, three four years. I think it's been out. I don't know when it was published. Um, looks like this version I have was published in. 2010 but it's very likely that the book was out before that and basically what the whole concept of the book is these uh, researchers decided to do a, a massive comprehensive study on the habits whether it's the spending habits the uh, business habits, the day-to-day -day habits, the kind of like lifestyles of people who are considered millionaires. And they were able to find these people using like tax return data and were able to find them by approaching like trust accounts that had these uh, people's information. And they reached out to them and they've conducted this huge, massive, comprehensive interview-like uh, research where they tried to kind of figure out what these people did in order to get to their level of success. And the reason I wanted to talk about it today <clears throat> is because one of the fundamental themes of this book is that it goes against what mainstream thought is about wealth accumulation. And that is that the vast majority of these people received any sort of inheritance or any sort of wealth of any kind from some sort of trust fund or an estate from their parents upon their passing. So the common belief is that wealth is sort of bottlenecked or maybe not the best word but that getting to a, a wealthy position in life there's a bottleneck and that bottleneck is your connections to already wealthy people like basically being born into a wealthy family so that's probably very true in other countries where people don't have the same freedoms as the freedoms that we have in Western civilization, but the data just doesn't support that. So this book, uh, I'm going to read a couple of the stats here. I was just trying to find the paper, the specific page. So it says only 19% of millionaires. And by the, by the way, when they say millionaire, they mean somebody with a net worth of $1 million. So as long as you hit that net worth, it was fine. Uh, it doesn't really take into account what the person's income was because the person's income could be 80000 a year, but if they've saved over a long period of time and now they're 55 years old and they've been saving really a majority of their income since they were 20, they're going to hit that millionaire status, especially if they own their own home. So that, that that's an important distinction. Anyways, it said only 19% received any form of wealth of any kind from a trust fund or an estate. Fewer than 20% inherited 10% or more of their wealth. So meaning out of the people that actually inherited some sort of wealth, so 
from those that that 19% that inherited wealth that 19% if you break it down again only 20% of them received um a lump sum that was 10% or more of their current wealth so if the person that did receive some sort of uh amount of money or some asset and they're worth 1 million there were very few of them that received anything more than 100 grand if they were only worth a million dollars and then more than half have never received as much as $1 in inheritance fewer than 25% ever received an act of kindness of 10,000 or more from their parents grandparents or other relatives what does that mean so basically like your parents just kind of keeping some money saved up. They haven't passed away yet, but let's say you're going to go and buy a house and they pay you some lump sum to help with the down payment. So then your mortgage is less or that you can afford something a little nicer. 91% never received as a gift as much as $1 of the ownership of a family business. And that is huge because many people believe that just because your family has a very established business that the next generation will necessarily kind of just build up on that. I've seen some cases where that is actually true, but that just happens to be because the people in that family are a tight-knit family uh, and the kids worked at, did, did some sort of work early on in their life and you know, they, they did a lot of different things and then they discovered that this is the thing that they want to do right now. And there is a possibility that they may take over, take it over, but they still haven't. They are employees of that, of that business. But the majority of the people I know that are my age group or older that have businesses started it on their own, or if their parents have a business, they're not giving it to their kids. The, the parents are either selling the business for their own retirement or um, if it's a business that can't really be sold, then they're, they're, they just kind of retire and stop when, when they get to a certain age. They don't just pass it on. Nearly half never received any college tuition from their parents or other relatives. I'm in that boat. I didn't receive a dime for any tuition from anybody. Um, I did win a few scholarships, but those are based on my own merit and the majority of the amount of money that I, the, 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 basically other than the scholarships, all the other money was either student loans that the government was generous enough to give out, which I have to pay back with interest, or, uh, it was just me hustling and, and working my own tail off. Now I'm not a millionaire, obviously, but I'm just some normal guy and, for the most part, what this book lays out are is that the majority of these millionaires are normal guys. One, and then you know the the book has more stats, but I, I don't really um, uh, need to delve into the rest of them. But what's interesting is a lot of people think that ancestry is also another major thing uh, that a major factor. So the the belief is that if you were part of the the early, like if your family is part of the early generation. English uh, pioneers that came to the Americas, that a majority of that wealth is still circulating in those families. And they did a comprehensive study of, on that too. And it just shows that that's just not true. While English people, like it states, while the English are 
amongst millionaires, uh, the most common, as in if you were to randomly pick an, a millionaire status family, the highest percentage chance that it would be English is the highest versus other nationalities. The per capita rating, meaning the amount of English families there are to the amount of millionaire English families there are, is actually fourth place. Uh, first place is Russian. And then second is Scottish. And and those, those uh, communities came to the Americas much later than than the English did. So that sort of debunks that area too. And then kind of like dives into, I haven't read the book fully, but it, I just kind of started it. It dives into, you know, why Russians and the Scots. And what's interesting is that, well, well, I mean, Russians, it's, it's pretty straightforward, incredibly industrious people, very hardworking, start businesses, pretty much all of them self-employed and successfully self-employed. The Scottish story is a little bit more interesting is it, and it's that even though they're second place, they tend to be some of the uh, lowest in amount of yearly personal income, regardless of if they're self-employed or have a contract like professional job, like being a lawyer or an accountant or a salesperson, doctor, whatever. They tend to be paid less or make less money than their Russian counterparts or their English counterparts or their um, French counterparts that actually rank lower than them in the amount of millionaires. And the reason is, and this is where I want to get into the most, is that they have a culture of frugality, is that they save way more than the other cultures that are already saving in order to get to millionaire status. So there's this culturally induced uh, frugality behavior that I found fascinating. Um, and, and then it, the book, what, what it does is it, it, it sort of illustrates like the mis other misconceptions about the lifestyles of what we perceive are millionaires. So it had this cool story where uh, they had invited these people who were uh, considered, excuse me, considered DECA millionaires. So their, their uh, net worth is 10 million or more. And in order to sort of make them feel at home, or so they thought what the interviewers did was rent out a penthouse suite in this massive apartment. They had these like really high uh, font, like uh, what's it called? High quality, like meats and, and, um, charcuterie cheeses and that that kind of stuff and like uh caviar and like expensive alcohols like um wines and champagnes and whatnot and they had these people come up the the deca millionaires come up and like they they just like didn't want to eat any of the stuff that was there because it just wasn't stuff they would normally eat like i think one guy that called him bud because he said nope no thanks, all I drink is scotch, and the type of beer I prefer is free or Budweiser. So he, he, he didn't want any of that fancy stuff. And uh, something about, like, even though they knew they were hungry, they wouldn't eat anything. Like, all they ate was, like, the cheap crackers that you were supposed to put all the caviar on. And uh, it, they further illustrated that these people tend to live in neighborhoods that are, like, middle class or lower middle class neighborhoods they tend to live in homes in in that book at the time it was written that are valued around three hundred thousand dollars i would say if i had to just kind of hand wave and guess that they're talking about homes that are probably valued around six hundred seven hundred thousand dollars now at least in the area i live i'm i'm a in 
BC, coastal Canada. So all the homes are very expensive here, but basically the, the idea is they're living in below average value homes or average valued homes, modest homes. And in modest neighborhoods, they are not living in like the upper middle class, upper class zip codes or area codes that people think they are. For the most part, when they purchase cars, they purchase domestic. They don't purchase the expensive imported like British or German cars. And they hardly, I think some of the other things is like they hardly ever spend more than $3.99 on suits. The majority of them, like the most common watch by millionaires is the Seiko watch, which you can get one for a couple hundred bucks. So they're not dropping like $5,000 plus on a on an Omega or a Rolex or whatever. And for the most part, they're, they're not purchasing like expensive, um, like commodities. Rather what they're doing is they are saving a large percentage of their incomes and investing the, that, uh, another percentage of that income into things such as bonds, uh, the stock market, real estate, but for the most part, their biggest investments are in some sort of business that they either own and operate or in a business in which they are a silent partner or some sort of investor and they get paid out in dividends. The other thing I found fascinating is that the majority of them claim to work in, in fields that aren't exactly the most sexy fields to be working in. So some examples was like pest control, roofing contractor, landscaping. Of course there were doctors and, and lawyers and accountants, um, property managers. So a, a lot of jobs that probably don't sound the most attractive to other people. Maybe, maybe people are attracted to lawyers and doctors because of TV shows, but the reality is the jobs themselves are pretty they're pretty repetitive and mundane after, after a while, or they, they can pay quite a bit of a toll on you, especially, uh, especially if you're, you're self-employed and you have to take care of patients in the case of the doctor sense. Um, so, so it's not like they have these lavish careers as like entertainers or actors or musicians or athletes. Like that is typically sensationalized in the media. And then the, the spending habits of those athletes is also sensationalized. So there was a story about how like Magic Johnson, the, the famous basketball player and very, very intelligent, business savvy person, uh, famously went into this like shoe shop and then one day spent like, I think it was like 40 grand or something. He bought a whole bunch of pairs of shoes. And then somebody else, like some sort of boxing promoter in the book, went and like almost doubled what he had spent in one day. And like those things get sensationalized in the media because obviously it's something that's clickbaitable, I guess, in our time. Whereas if, if you saw an article that just said, I don't know, Deca millionaire decides to park his car three blocks down the road in free parking to avoid parking fare, wouldn't exactly be the most interesting piece of content that you would want to read. And the reality is, is the majority of these people live those types of lives. And 
I can see how the harshest and biggest criticism of that is that you only live one life and if you're making a bunch of money and you're not spending it, then you're just kind of putting it away for nothing. I wholeheartedly disagree because the reason these people are frugal and work really hard for their money is not just so that they have more money to, that is accumulating and they're not just just getting enjoyment out of watching their investments grow, even though that is one thing that they admit that they enjoy and I myself enjoy as well. I love being able to see my hard work sort of result in some sort of gain. In this case, it would be money and you can actually see it grow physically or at least see the numbers grow on a, on a screen. But the main reason they do it is for the freedom. Majority of these people, they have what they like to call, um, what was it? The go to hell fund or something. Basically, if for whatever reason they want to tell their boss to go to hell or everybody that that are their clients to go to hell, they can because they're not working paycheck to paycheck. They don't need that next month's income in order for them to stay afloat. They they have their money working for them and they're being paid by that investment every month and they have a whole bunch of money saved away and their lifestyle is well below their means, meaning that at any given time they can get up and take a break and go away. Or if for whatever reason business is slow or they can't work, they're not worried or have to go to work in order to basically stay afloat. And that freedom and that peace of mind <clears throat> is something that very few people ever get to experience in their entire lives, even in Western world, because we live in an overconsumption focused culture. I see now on YouTube that the idea of minimalism is starting to gain traction. And I agree with some aspects of minimalism, but I also disagree with others. I'm somebody who is willing to pay a premium for two things. One thing that saves me time and one thing that has some sort of experience attached to it. So I'm going to start with time. I would rather go to one grocery store that for the most part has pretty much everything I need that isn't an overpriced grocery store, but not necessarily always has the best deals on every item, but makes it so I only need to do take one trip and don't have to wait in line at a bunch of grocery stores just so I can save a couple bucks on a few items that I was, that I get to, that I, you know, use a lot. That amount of time that I get to, to save by just making one trip and then coming home is worth more to me exponentially than the potential hundreds of dollars I could save in a year by kind of always being aware of what the deals are in all these grocery stores at what given times in order to get the best deal on the day that I'm going to go shopping. I don't pay attention to any of that stuff. Because to me, that amount of saving is so minuscule for the amount of time and sort of like brain, uh, like real estate it requires for you to always be on top of it because sales happen everywhere, prices change. I just don't really see the value in that, but the timing 
uh, the, the time saving component of going to one place is huge. And then the second thing is experience. I know right now there's probably at least the YouTube videos I watch, a lot of people make fun of like, or try to use the, the example of buying your coffee at a Starbucks as a massive waste of money. And I agree to an extent because if you're just going to Starbucks every single day, and I don't want to just pick on Starbucks, like if you're just getting a regular coffee, it's like under $2, at least where I live. It's pretty, it's, it's a little bit more expensive than your average McDonald's coffee, which in Canada is very good. I don't know how it is in the States. And it's not much different than any other coffee shop. But what I think is really fun and convenient about these coffee shops is that you have the option to grab a coffee and go for a walk. You have the option to just grab whatever you feel like in addition to the coffee and go for a walk. And yes, you could just make the coffee at home in a mug and then hold the, the mug or not the mug, sorry, the, the travel con, the little travel container. And that's perfectly fine. I do that sometimes too. But you know what? I, I kind of like the experience and the spontaneity of just being like, hey, you know what? I'm going to go for a walk. I want to grab a coffee. Maybe I'll sit down in the coffee shop for a bit. Maybe I'll I'll have another one of those items that they have there as well. I don't know. Like it, it's kind of it's kind of that when it comes to casual free time, I feel like there should be a certain level of planning required. But if it's something that is so overplanned, it kind of takes the fun out of it. So I hope I'm making sense here. It's just, it's kind of like the coffee shop experience is what you're paying for, not the coffee. But if you're just grabbing it and going through a drive-through every single day to work, yeah, maybe maybe start making a pot at home, you know, have it planned for the night of, and then just press the button when you wake up in the morning, and as you're getting ready, it should be ready to go. Pour it in a little travel mug or container, and you're good to go. So, when it comes to those two things, I don't really agree with minimalism because I know in some cases what minimalists like to do is to reduce the unnecessary spendings like that. And I think it's a good swing in the other direction, but extreme minimalism also deprives you of many experiences you can have. And sometimes those little tiny things that you do are just as meaningful as saving up your money for like a big trip or maybe an instrument that you've always wanted to play and you're finally save up enough money to be able to go and buy one for yourself and purchase some lessons and learn. I think those little moments of spending time with people that you care about and there is no agenda, there's no plan. It's just, let's just go here, sit down. I would way rather pay 30 times what the coffee is worth, the $2 to have that experience than, than to avoid it just because I don't want to quote unquote overspend for some coffee on some coffee. Anyways, that's my rant for today. I hope you found it interesting. Um, millionaire next door. I don't have any like affiliate links or anything. I got it on the Kindle app on Amazon. It was like, it was only three bucks. It was on sale. I, I got to do it during Black Friday, though, but you can get it pretty much anywhere. If you find that book interesting, at least my description of it, check it out. Millionaire next door. I don't know, wherever. Rent it at a library for all I care. Peace.